The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Deirdre Schleniger. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Stop Foodborne Illness, a national nonprofit public health organization that is dedicated to the prevention of illness and death from foodborne pathogens. They do this by promoting sound food safety policy and best practices. They build public awareness and assist those impacted by foodborne illness. Ms. Schleniger serves as an advisory member to the Joint Institute of Food Safety and Nutrition. She is a participating member of the Safe Food Coalition and the Make Our Food Safe Coalition. She serves as commissioner of the International Food Science Certification Commission as well. She graduated from Colorado State University with a Bachelor of Science in Human Development and Family Studies and completed a child life internship at Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital. She has a long history of nonprofit work, and it is delighted to have her with me to talk about foodborne illness. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it seems to me that foodborne illness and recalls have been on our radar more frequently. I don't know whether the incidence has increased, but it seems that every day or every couple of days, I get notice of a food recall. Tell me a little bit about your history, how you got involved with this topic in particular, and what you want our listeners to know about recalls. Well, I have been at the organization for eight years, and I have worked for a lot of nonprofit organizations. I was president and CEO of Make-A-Wish Foundation of Oklahoma. I was with the Breast Cancer Organization, Domestic Violence. So I was hired to really help build the infrastructure and capacity of the organization. But I have always been very, very interested in science and in food safety, And I've worked in children's hospitals for many years, and so I worked with families who had been impacted by lots of different illnesses, and so came to the organization with that experience as well. Mm -hmm. And what are you seeing with regard to recalls? Is it my imagination, am I seeing more, say, today compared with 10 or 20 years ago? Well, you are seeing more, and we expect that as state public health epi capacity increases, there's going to be more successful investigations. And that as genome sequencing is implemented and CDC's PulseNet later this year, more clusters will be detected that need investigation. And this is a good thing because investigation is an opportunity to find and potentially fix another gap in food safety. And uh, also the industry itself probably are doing more testing Uh, which is leading to more recalls, even in the absence of uh, associated human illness. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, we do expect to see illnesses and outbreaks decrease as a result of heightened attention to food safety, but probably not overnight. And our technology in tracing food has just gotten better and better over the last few years. Um, CDC's just done remarkable work 
and the genome sequencing has really changed the way we can track food. And so I think that that's something else that why we're seeing more. Well, I'll give you an example. You know, I used to work in extension decades ago, mm-hmm. and there would be foodborne illness outbreaks. You know, there might be a church picnic, for example, where people right. got sick eating a food that had not been handled safely. And I think that USDA does a really great job with consumer education about how do we prevent foodborne illness, paying attention to cross-contamination and temperature abuses, and just general overall handling. And those labels on meat products in particular have really improved. Mm -hmm. But I think that with the industrialization of our food supply, when there is a problem, it affects so much more of our food supply and affects people in so many more states. So just as a recent example, and I believe I pulled this down from your website, and just to let our listeners know, if you want to find out more about foodborne illness, this is a wonderful resource, stopfoodborneillness.org. So I got a news release, and it had to do with Cargill. They recalled ground beef products due to possible E. coli contamination. They recalled over 25,000 pounds of ground beef products. Good that we had it recalled. We don't want anyone getting sick. But at the same time, I don't know about you, but I think about the environmental and the economic costs and the climate costs of all of these animal products all of the energy and resources that went into them and all of that waste. And then I think, well, what happens to those meat products when they are recalled? How many people are even aware of the recall? And so I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, a lot of things to respond to, I think. There are a number of, I I think in terms of the recall, you know, we were talking about that before there also and. Most foods, well, all foods, I would say, that are recalled because of a food safety concern are destroyed. If it's a maybe a possible recall because of a quality issue or something that doesn't implicate one's health, then that food, you know, might be donated. So I think when it's possible, people try to not uh, waste that food. But, of course, if it's a food safety hazard, then it can't go to consumers. Right. I think there are so many different, well, there are so many different ways that foodborne illnesses can occur. So it could be from uh, runoff in a farm. It could be from workers in the field who aren't washing their hands. It could be, I mean, there's just, that could be during transportation. There's just so many ways that foodborne illnesses can be transmitted and become a problem. And there are many different pathogens. So, you know, and each one of them are a little different. But it is amazing sometimes the number of pounds of food or the the number of items that are recalled. It it is quite amazing. And it's appalling, really, from an environmental resourcefulness perspective, from my view. So food can be recalled due to bacterial contamination. We see that. We also see recalls due to allergens. Yes. So... Oops, we have a food that contains dairy, contains soy, and it wasn't labeled as such. So that lot of food has to be removed. And I'm assuming that if it's an allergen problem, that food could be reused perhaps to go into, I think it goes into livestock feed or animal feed Mm -hmm. sometimes, as opposed to putting it into a landfill. 
Right. And if it is a quality or a specification issue and the food item is wholesome, as I say, that's often donated. Right. Okay. So let's talk about specific areas of your website where you think our listeners might find help in terms of what are the different foodborne illnesses I might experience and ways to prevent them. Tell me why people should visit your website. Well, there are a lot of different areas on the website. It's, you know, you have to kind of poke and look around, but there are advocacy issues listed. There are links to different agencies like CDC, FDA, USDA. There are links to articles. There are stories. We have something called an honor wall where people tell their stories about their experience with foodborne illness. And, of course, we do talk about what to do if you think you're sick, and we have a list of food recalls. And so you can even go back in history and look, you know, to see what's there. You can also find recall information uh, on FDA site and uh, USDA site, and, and I believe on CDC also. Oh, absolutely. And the sites that you mentioned are some of my favorites. Uh, yes. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for example, they recently estimated that every year roughly one in six Americans or 48 million people get sick, 128,000 are hospitalized, and 3,000 die of foodborne yes. diseases. So this is just to give our listeners an oversight. And it's my understanding, and I think even from personal experience, most cases of foodborne illness go unreported. Yes, that's true. And lots of people just never know what it was that made them sick. They may be sick for a few days and then get better and and they don't really ever find out what it was. But some people have are very, very ill, and as we just said, 3,000 people a year in the U.S., an estimated 3,000 people a year in the U.S. die every year from it. And many people who survive have long-term consequences. They may have rheumatoid arthritis, hypertension, kidney dysfunction, diabetes, all sorts of things, irritable bowel, C. diff, and, I mean, just a lot of different long-term consequences that we don't think about. Right. I can tell you that I have spoken to many people who tell me that they had a bout of foodborne illness and they really suffered for months afterwards with regard to GI discomfort and distress. What I thought was interesting on your website, and once again for our listeners, that website is www.stopfoodborneillness.org. You've got some quick fact sheets that I thought were fascinating. And you mentioned this, what kinds of things can happen to me after I get foodborne illness, after the diarrhea or the vomiting, after the initial illness is gone? Reactive arthritis, who would have even thought that? But so you're saying that joint pain, which is a sign of reactive arthritis, may occur one to three weeks after experiencing a foodborne illness. So Do you think there are people who are connecting those dots? What about individuals who are going to their doctors and maybe not even mentioning that they had foodborne illness, but simply going to the doctor and saying, you know, my joints are hurting, I'm suffering from what feels like inflammation. How many doctors even know to ask, gosh, have you had foodborne illness lately? Yeah, well, you know, that's fascinating because there are a lot of physicians that don't really know a lot about foodborne illness. In fact, I was on a plane a couple of years ago and sitting next to an emergency room doctor who was over several hospital emergency departments. 
and I was reading an article that we'd been quoted in in a magazine, and then we started talking, and he said, you know, I just don't know that much about foodborne illness. And I thought, wow, because that's the first point of entry when someone is really, really sick. And we have been to national emergency physician conferences and shared information, and it was just amazing how many people were really fascinated and interested and wanted to learn more and wanted to know how they could connect. But I I think because even though 128,000 are hospitalized every year, it still is in the in their mind, considering how many people they see, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that, you know, it's not that often. But for the 128,000 that have it, of course, it's quite significant. So we need to do a much better job of educating emergency department physicians and nurses about the issue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Deirdre Schlunniger. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Stop Foodborne Illness, which is a national nonprofit public health organization which is dedicated to the prevention of illness and death from foodborne pathogens by promoting sound food safety policy and best practices building public awareness, and assisting those impacted by foodborne illness. We were talking about the resources available on your website, and I know that I have spent hours at your website looking at the different fact sheets and tips, but one of the pieces that I really enjoyed looking at were the videos of people who were either working in industry and who were trying to protect the public and describing how they do it and their commitment to food safety because they know what's at risk. And then also hearing from victims who survived foodborne illness, as well as there are some tragic stories. One I recall from a mother who lost her little boy related to eating one of those hamburger patties that makes life so much easier when you're a working parent. So those are very powerful stories. And I think that was a really good strategy to get the point across about just how serious this issue is. Yeah, I think people really, we, we do hear from people often who are in the hospital or or maybe they're home, but they've experienced a foodborne illness, and they want to know more. So we've tried our best to create a website that is really helpful for them. We're actually just getting ready to, to start a little project working with some people who've come to our website to see how we can do an even better job of that and asking them, what were you looking for that you didn't find, and and how can we improve the information so that you will be able to quickly find what you need. So it's a work in progress, but we're pretty proud of it. Well, you've got some fact sheets, and I want to pull one up that I thought was especially interesting, because of late, what has become so popular are food trucks and food carts. How are they regulated? Well, it depends on the the state you're in and sometimes the city that you're in, how they're regulated. Most states have a variety of different perspectives and regulations around it. But what we really want to look for is is making sure people are using gloves, making sure that the food that's being cooked, that they're using a thermometer to measure the heat of the food before they hand it over to customers. That's critical. And that cold food is being kept cold and warm food is being, you know, being kept warm or hot food is being kept hot. 
and that there is a place for the employees to wash their hands is another really critical piece of information. You know, is it clean? Is it clean inside? Or do you look inside and see some unkept places? If so, I probably wouldn't be eating there. But it's certainly a, a new world of thinking about food safety. Mm-hmm. Should I be looking for some certificate on the food truck that assures me that it's passed some kind of inspection? Well, again, that depends on the city and the, the state, but I would certainly look and see what might be there. Um, you know, it's, and in some cities they have, and I don't know, honestly, if this applies to food trucks, but some city restaurants have a grading system in terms of, you know, their safety. So there may be something like that, or there may be a certificate from the health department or some kind of a city certificate or county certificate but it may be different for each location. Well, you talk about this idea of lukewarm food and whether you're getting food from a food truck or a restaurant. I know I've gone to some of my favorite restaurants and I'll get soup and it'll be lukewarm. And Mm -hmm. it's not a comfortable feeling. It's not a comfortable position to be in, to be a pest and to tell the waiter, excuse me, but this (laughs) soup is not hot. It needs to be piping hot when it gets to my plate. So I suspect that many people probably feel that way. You know, they'll get a food served to them and they'll think, well, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to bother anybody. What kind of tips can you give consumers to empower them to protect themselves? Because this is more than a tummy ache. I think you've got a fact sheet about that, that foodborne right. illness is more than a tummy ache. Yes. It can really lead to serious consequences down the road. Certainly can. Yeah. What do you I tell think people? I- I think that it's interesting. I've had dinner with a lot of food safety people. Yeah, that's always <laughs> interesting. So, so it, I always watch them right. to see what their behavior is. I remember actually having a meal with the chef, and our water was brought out to us, and the waiter brought it out with his fingers inside the glass and set them down, you know, like he had two cups of two glasses of water and a thumb on one and two fingers inside the other. And the chef very politely said, would you please bring me another glass of water in which your fingers have not been inside? <laughs> which, you know, he was very calm and cool, but it was like, oh, wow, he, he really, you know, does that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if, if your meat isn't cooked well, uh, ask them, do you use a thermometer? Meat needs to be cooked to the proper temperature in order to be safe. And color is not an indicator of that it's cooked to the, that temperature. So you really have to be careful about that. Of course, some people like rare meat, and I'm seeing more and more. It's not advisable, that's for sure, but I see more and more restaurants putting a disclaimer you know, on the bottom or right. about uh, if you eat a rare food or, or some even information about food safety or foodborne illness. So just be mindful. I, I talked to another person whose son had died from a foodborne illness, and he was somewhere eating, and the, the same guy that was taking money and transaction and doing all of that and was also serving the food and was also, you know, doing all sorts of things together and, and wasn't washing hands or using gloves. And he said something to him, you know, and, and, the, and the person who worked at the restaurant said, oh, it's not a problem. You really don't have to worry about that. And he said, I do. I lost a son to this problem. I do have to worry about it. Right. And so I think even people, you know, who work in the restaurants, I was at a you know, a big box store, and, and they had a little restaurant inside, and I was watching the person behind the counter washing her hands, and she washed her hands for probably 
two to three seconds with no soap under running water. And that doesn't cut it. I mean, you have to wash your hands in order to get rid of the germs on your hands and bacteria for 30 seconds. You know, that's singing happy birthday twice or counting slowly to 30 or whatever it is. But that's it's at that point that you, and with soap and water, and so you re- a lot of people just don't know it or the boss isn't watching or they all have to go through training. So that you would think that they certainly would know that. But also I think that they don't make the connection between people getting sick and their behavior. You know, we've seen that in, in you know, a large Mexican restaurant where the biggest problems were uh, at times that their employees weren't washing their hands and uh, norovirus became a, it was a product of that. So I think that... Um, you know, that's really important. And one of the things we're doing at STOP that we've been doing for the last few years that I'm really very proud of is working with companies. We want to be part of a solution, and we want to really leverage what resources we have to come up with a solution. And so we go to company trainings, or we'll do a video for employees. We did that with Kroger Foods. We've done it with Wegmans on the East Coast. And we share a a story of someone or the actual person who was sick or had a child who was sick or died or a parent will share their story through video and sometimes in person. And that seems to really stick. You know, you see people, employees in the audience going, you know, you just see the light bulb going off the head and thinking, wow, I've never really known anybody who's actually been sick. And so, you know, when they hear the personal stories, they have a tendency to remember better why it's important (laughs) to be careful and to take care. And so we've been doing that for a a few years now, and it's been quite successful. We've had so much feedback with people saying, wow, I just had no idea uh, this could be so serious. Exactly. And I think that is probably one of the most important points we can make during our half hour together is... You know, we think foodborne illness might be just a little diarrhea. Maybe we're vomiting. Maybe we don't feel well for a couple of days. But in fact, it can lead to long-term consequences and even death. We spoke about the issue of what do we look for in terms of food handling. I remember being at a, I was at a beautiful touristy bake shop in Alaska. And there was a gentleman behind the counter who was handling with gloves on one of the pastries. And prior to picking up the pastry he was going to serve me, with his gloves on, he wiped his nose. Oh. And I said, excuse me, but it might be best (laughs) to throw that pastry away. And Mm -hmm. here's why. And oftentimes I can say, well, I'm I'm a registered dietitian. I work in this field. But it's difficult. It's uncomfortable. There's a long line behind you. And here is somebody, you know, being difficult with the server. But I think my point here is that gloves give us a sense of false security. We put them on and then we handle the food. We handle the money. We handle. And it's like, no, no, no. This is a protection against you and the food. And I'm sure in trainings, staff are taught that's the proper way to use gloves is to remove them if you're going to be handling money and so on. But I think when people are busy and they feel pressured, maybe they're understaffed, that that's when we see abuses. But these are just things for our listeners to look out for. The gloves are not going to protect you if they're touching food and money and skin. And you'll hear people in the food safety world talk about the poke through effect. So which isn't very pleasant to think about, but if the 
restaurant worker goes to the bathroom, doesn't wash their hands, puts their gloves on, and their fingers poke through the end of the gloves. Right. You've got a problem. Right. <laughs> so that's important to think about, too. Yeah. And we should let our listeners know that most foodborne illness results from fecal contamination, yes. whether it's from irrigation with lettuce, from, say, there's a cattle feedlot nearby, a green growing farm. If that irrigation water that's contaminated with fecal material gets on those leaves, that's often how we find E. coli on green leafy vegetables. If it's simply the server or yourself or a family member who uses the restroom that doesn't wash their hands. So it's often related to fecal material or contaminated waters too. If you're eating seafood and the sewage system isn't working well in those waters where the seafood was harvested, another point of entry for fecal bacteria. Let me. Birds flying over fields. I mean, I think yes. uh, a lot of the food safety conferences, you'll see a lot of technical companies trying to find remedies for keeping you know, the birds away from the fields. And uh, that's why another reason it's so important to wash all of your food and you get it home. It's important to wash it. I mean, we cantaloupe, scrub right. that skin. Watermelon, scrub the skin before you cut it. You know, a lot of times people don't really think about that. And although it, it, most even agencies advise not to pre-washed packages of salads and that sort of thing. And I usually do because we've had a couple of families, one in particular who had three young girls who were all sick from a triple pre-washed salad, and one of them nearly died, uh, has diabetes, severe eye problems, kidney problems, you know, lots of long-term consequences. Uh, the other two fared a little better. Their immune systems were probably stronger and they were a little older. So I don't know. I mean, you'll you'll look at sites and they'll say don't wash it because it could create even a, more of a opportunity for cross contamination, which is probably true if your sink isn't clean, if your colander isn't clean, if, and that sort of thing. But you know, it is an option. Well, I don't buy bagged lettuces anymore. My own shopping behaviors have really changed. Mm-hmm. I buy local greens when I can. That's not to say that local greens are not going to be contaminated, but I feel like at least they're not traveling the distance. Yes. And if I know the farm where it came from, I know that it hasn't had a long time to incubate under hot temperatures. So for myself, my choice is that I try to buy local greens when they're in season from a local farmer, and of course, I always wash them. Well, we need to wrap up, Ms. Schleniger, but I just want to, again, recommend the website, www.stopfoodborneillness.org. There are links to many issues, many topics that we can talk about. We also want to let people know about the Food and Drug Administration and USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, which has great tips for handling food, especially over the holidays. And we also want to let people know that they can contact their county extension office for food safety information as well. But it pays to take the extra step to be careful. Yes. Protect yourself. And, and I would just like to say, just on our last point real quickly, is that food pathogens don't discriminate on the size of the farm. So it's still really, really important to you know wash your uh, fruits and vegetables from your farmer's market or from local. We have a young woman in Nevada who has had very severe, may still need a kidney transplant, uh, long-term consequences, who her salad came from a uh, small organic farm. So don't get too confident. You still have to take the steps for food safety. All farms 
Food yes. from all farms needs to yes. be washed well. Yes, thank yes. you for that. Well, sure. we must close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to especially thank my guest, Ms. Deirdre Schleniger. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Stop Foodborne Illness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.